everybody and welcome to Theo Now. My name is Andrew Crabtree and I'm a Roman Catholic seminarian uh, with the Diocese of Knoxville in Tennessee and we are joined today um, by Dave Graybill. Do I call you Dave? Is that okay? Dave is Reverend? perfect. All right. <laughs> no, All right. Dave would be great. Great. We're, Dave, uh, we're joined with Dave Graybill here and um, I think we're just going to talk a little bit today about, about you, which should be the easiest thing for you to talk about, I hope, and then uh, we'll but... dig into the harder stuff a little bit later maybe. All right. All right, so uh, I just want to start off with, I mean, who are you? Yeah, thanks, Drew. Thanks for the invitation to come and, and uh, share a little bit about this. Yeah, so I'm a United Methodist pastor here in Athens, Tennessee, currently um, at Keith Memorial United Methodist Church. I grew up in um, Marion, Virginia, which is in the southwestern part of the state. Uh, Smallish town, probably around 8,000 folks. Grew up uh, going to the United Methodist Church there in town as I like to say, before I was born. Um, so kind of grew up there, went to uh, preschool there, uh, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, all that. Um, became a, an acolyte when that was a thing. And so, so, so what exactly is an acolyte? So an acolyte is uh, the person usually, uh, I think when we were there, it was like between third and fourth grade and maybe eighth grade. Kids who, uh, so that's where I really got to my appreciation for some of the vestments in the church. Okay. We would wear an, a white alb, and I remember the um, acolyte coordinator would show us how to tie the cincture, mm-hmm. uh, which was the knotted rope around us that would was essentially our belt. And so to this day, when I wear my alb in worship, uh, I still tie the cincture the way <laughs> nice. I learned as an acolyte. But what an acolyte does is lights the candles uh, at the beginning of worship, extinguishes them at the end, and also handles the offering plates during the service. Um, The main thing when I was growing up, though, that we had to do was we sat right behind the pastor. Uh, So we had to act, look like we were paying attention, and we had to (laughs) act very responsibly up there. So uh, one of the things that I think I discovered was that when when you're acting like you're paying attention, you, you actually sort of can't help but pay attention. And and um, so I think I, I that was maybe helpful for my theological formation. Um, Absolutely. And what age was that again? You said that was probably third third grade to eighth grade third or grade so. To eighth grade. so. That's good to be paying attention at that young of an age. Oh, yeah. there's a lot that you absorb Absolutely. at that age. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I grew up there in Marion and then uh, went off to college at a, at a small Methodist school, very much like Tennessee Wesley. Ah, my alma mater. Yep. I went to uh, Emory and Henry College okay. in Virginia, and then uh, after a couple years of uh, working in the admissions office, went off to seminary in Atlanta at Emory University, and then um, have served he- here and there since then. So wow! So um, so regarding the Methodist Church, like what exactly is Methodism? I mean, I know a little bit about it. Like you said, I, I went to Tennessee Wesleyan on alma mater, which mm-hmm. is a which is a Methodist college here, actually in Athens, Tennessee. Right. Um, but you know, and I took a few theology classes. But being a Roman Catholic now, I've kind of 
lost my way when it comes to uh, the ways of Wesley. So sure. if you could explain a little bit sure. about that. So, um, so you're in the Roman Catholic tradition. I would kind of characterize, this is probably, a lot of folks would probably quibble with this, but um, I would say Methodism is Roman Catholic's grandchildren. Ah. <laughs> because, of course, the Church of England came out of the Roman Catholic right. tradition, and then the Methodists came out of the Church of England Anglican tradition. Oh, okay. John Wesley and his brother Charles were the founders of the Methodist movement. They were both Church of England priests back in the 1700s. And so it basically began as a renewal movement within mm. uh, the Church of England. They didn't, uh, I don't think, intend to start a new denomination they were more trying to start a renewal movement, much as has happened in Roman Catholicism. Lutheranism kind of started that way, um, and so. But by the time it got over to the to the colonies, the United States, when we declared independence, um, the Church of England kind of fell out of favor, <laughs> but right. Methodism was roaring, and so uh, that's kind of how Methodism got to be so big in the United States and. Okay. And of course, it spread around globally. So as well. it's more. It started primarily as an American. Well, it, it became popular in America because of the revolution. Is that what you're? Well, about that same, about time, that same time. Yeah, okay. when folks were uh, sending over missionaries from England, oh, uh, okay. it was it was spreading through. Just about the same time, the uh, the American movement was spreading. So it spread west at the same time. Uh, as the as the American movement. So has did. there been a lot of change in what Methodism looks like since then in regards to what it looks like today? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of times uh, back before Methodists got a lot of buildings, um, they were having a lot of uh, their worship services out in the open, um, out in brush arbors, or they would have tent meetings. To, uh, so kind of during the Great Awakenings, the evangelical movements, of the 1800s, um, it just really t spread like that, and then uh, by the time you know Methodism, uh, it really kind of got into every community across the United States, and so they began building buildings and sort of settling down and um, creating, be becoming. I think we're the second largest uh, denomination, uh, Protestant denomination in the U.S. Oh wow! Okay, after Southern Baptists. So, wow, I yeah. didn't realize that. That's yeah. That's Wow, that's impressive. Uh, I, I want to get back to you a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you said you went to seminary down in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Emory, Emory and Henry? Nope. At Emory University. Emory University. Yeah, in there Atlanta. we go. So um, what kind of led you to head down that road? So that's a great question, too. Uh, I was looking around at some different seminaries at the time, um, some of them up north. I, I kind of wanted to get out initially of the region of the Southeast and just sort of try something different. So I was looking at Boston University. I was looking at um, Yale. I was looking at um, some of the schools up there, Princeton. But then I was also looking at Duke um, and Candler, which is at Emory in, in Atlanta. And um, I don't know. I just, I, I grew up watching, this is, this is, uh, this is theological discernment at its best. <laughs> Um, so I grew up as a kid watching Atlanta Braves baseball. Absolutely. Back be back before they were any good, oh, you know, yeah. uh, back uh, in the Dale Murphy era, okay. if if that name rings it a bell does, for some actually. folks. So like, um, so the right when I was uh, getting ready to go off to seminary was was the year or two after they had won the World Series. So it was a place to be. I was more of a Braves baseball fan than I was a. Duke basketball fan or anything else. And so uh, and Atlanta was just really up and coming. And and another thing about really for the theolo theology of it, uh, 
Emory had the best, really, faculty at the time, even over the Ivy League folks, I think. that Most of the big names in all of the areas of study were at Emory at the time. So it was a great place to be. Yeah. Was seminary something you wanted to do since you were young, since you were you know, the age of an acolyte where you're sitting back there behind the pastor thinking, I could do this someday? You know, that is a thank you for that question. That's a great question. I think, um, I think there's a Episcopal, retired Episcopal priest now, um, Barbara Brown Taylor, who in one of her books, she says, if a lifelong preoccupation with the church counts as a calling, then that's how I was called. Okay. And so I would say, yeah, like uh, the acolyting was it was formative, but even before then, um, we would come home from church and I would get my stuffed animals out and put them up on my bed. And there was this big, tall rabbit that was always the preacher. And uh, I would line the stuffed animals up on the bed and we'd have singing and We'd have a, I would sort of regurgitate my childish version of the sermon I'd sort of heard. And uh, I think we even probably tried to have um, maybe a baptism in there, maybe a okay. communion in there. I'm sure that would be highly irregular now, <laughs> but uh, for, you know, I, so yeah, I think I enjoyed doing that. And um, I, yeah, I think that I could. You know, a lot of it is when you're a kid, you look at, you know, your teachers, your coaches, your influential people in your lives, and sometimes you think, hey, I can maybe see myself doing that, or, uh, and you try it out for a little bit, and, and I did. I, I sort of role-played that as a kid, and I think that was a big part of a calling that I kind of came back around to. I didn't, I sort of laid it to the side for a while during college, but kind of came back around to it. Yeah, so what... What was it then that kind of brought you back around? I know this is getting a little personal, but no, yeah. um, I know, like I could speak from my own experience. I know the time around, you know, high school, early college, things start to change. You start learning different things. Uh, many different cultures and ideas start mm. inundating you. And um, I know that it's a time of formation for good and for ill, but, you know, you made this choice to become a minister of God. And I think that's amazing. But how did, how did that how did that change happen? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. So uh, when I was in um, high school, it's probably brought my senior year, the start of my senior year. There were a, a group of us that were wanting to have devotions at school in the morning before school started, and so it was a student-led thing. And we got permission from uh, one of the teachers to be in in her room, and so we kind of started that and. Um, I was a part of that. And then uh, my home church hosted a lay speaker training event, uh, which a lay speaker uh, is a person who's not clergy, but who often will be called upon to fill in if the pastors are away on vacation or um, or invited to speak at different things. And so uh, my dad had been a certified lay speaker in our church. And so I I thought, I can't remember how it happened, but I signed up for the course, and he kind of took it with me. Um, and then uh, I was invited to preach. The first three times I was invited to speak was at a at a small African American uh, church in my hometown, which with with my parents and me that first Sunday, I think there were thirteen of us all together. Um, so not not wow, a huge yeah. crowd, but um, I had prepared my my message and got up there and. They were so encouraging and uh, supportive. 
they they said uh, amen in the middle of and oh. and it threw me off because we didn't do that in in my home church <laughs> right. and I kind of almost thought they sneezed or something and said bless you you know and and they would say preach it and and come on and and so I after preaching there I thought I'm a pretty good preacher there you, you know so they were very supportive so by the time I and my dad was also supportive he was. Um, a Sunday school teacher, and so he had invited me to come in and lead his lesson a few times, and so that was uh, just very encouraging of me. So I went off to college thinking I was possibly going to explore uh, pre-ministerial studies, but I was also keeping my mind open, uh, possibly teaching math. I love math. Um, and I was also thinking about following uh, my dad. He was an attorney. Okay. So uh, exploring some different things. But like you said, you get to college and you're exposed to so many different um, f- philosophies and perspectives and, and approaches. And so I kind of fell into a philosophy major. And uh, through that, I, I realized, oh, there's a lot of ways to question and critique some of the things I had learned in Sunday school and and in church, and it kind of threw me off a little bit, like, wow, this world is a lot bigger and there's a lot more going on than I had thought. So I kind of shelved the idea of ministry. Um, And at the same time, I was also beginning to see some of the underside of the church, some of the um, political infighting and some of the ways in which... um, you know, as a college student, where when we know it all at that point, you know, we, of course, know, of course, of we, course. Were, we know it all. So I was like, that the church is not acting like the way the church should act, and Jesus would not approve of the way they're behaving and the things they're arguing about, and who wants to have anything to do with the church, and blah blah blah. I'm, you know, so I kind of had felt like I'd moved on, but then um, my senior year, my dad got sick with cancer. Oh. And uh, so he, he just he had cancer for three months. It was very quick, and uh, passed away my around Christmas of that senior year. And so the thing that kind of brought the calling back was I saw how our home church and the uh, campus community at the college uh, really rallied around me and my family, and 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 I sort of remembered, oh yeah, that's. That's what the church is. That's what the church really is. It's not necessarily what makes the headlines. It's the church looking after, caring for, supporting, praying for one another in these times. And so that kind of brought brought it back to me. It was the care, the, the Christ-like care and presence of the church at my time of need that sort of was like, oh, yeah, I. that's sort of what I— can, can be drawn into. And then after after I graduated from from college, I, I think I mentioned I had spent two years working in admissions because I, I kind of, it sort of threw me off. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do still. And so I said, uh, you know, as some of your friends probably, uh, well, if you don't know what you can do, you can always work at the college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I loved Emory and Henry like you loved Tennessee Wesleyan. Right. And so I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, you know, tour prospective students around and their families and talk about a place I love. So I realized doing that, that like, um, hey, just as much as I enjoy going around and talking to folks about a college I love, uh, isn't that what ministry really is? Isn't it going around and talking about a community of Christ that means a lot to you and that you love? 
So I kind of thought, okay, being a minister is like being an admissions counselor for the kingdom <laughs> of God. Oh, I love that. You know, and so that's that's what really. And then I will I will also say I a guy that I sang in the college choir with, um, came in one day at practice because I was still tagging along and singing with the kind of the community chorus, the sort mm-hmm. of come y'all group. Yeah. They still let me do that. He came into practice one day and he said, well, I'm, I'm going off to seminary. And uh, we all kind of looked at him like, really? <laughs> you are? How about that? And then that was kind of like, I could almost sort of have a visual. I don't even know what the visual would be, but like if I could have a visual of God kind of looking at me and like oh. winking, like, all right, Gray Bill, now's your turn. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to. I'll bite the bullet, and so I then I really started in earnest the process. Wow, that's beautiful. So, what is the process? What does that look like for a Methodist minister? How does one become a Methodist minister? <laughs> so, there are many roads, my oh. friend, many roads. But the sort of the straightest and narrowest road would be um, would be you would declare yourself to be a candidate for ministry. Okay, which is not you're not signing your life away. You're really saying, I want to explore what this means. And so when you do that, there's a little book that you read called The Christian is Minister, which is essentially talks about um, how in our baptism, we're all ordained into the general ministry of the church. Um, and so, and then it talks about some of the different ways to serve in ministry. So to kind of help you think through what's out there, um, what you, how you might live into that calling. You talk about that book with your pastor, um, they assign you like to an, a mentor in the in the area to explore some things with. Um, then, as you move along, if your local church um, sort of personnel committee has the authority to sign off on you and, and basically say, "Yeah, we think that this person is a is a good candidate. We would we would support this person continuing on." Then you go into what's the district level, which would be. Um, sort of a small regional, kind of like in high school, your athletic conference, your your local athletic okay, conference would be yeah. your district, um, and so uh, you would go there, and then at that level they would conduct some like psychological evaluations, uh, an IQ test, which I remember like taking the IQ test and not really realizing that it was an IQ test. Like, I just sort of, like, oh, this is kind of fun. And yeah. look at that. And, huh. and then I'm like, about halfway through, I'm like, oh my, um, I, I really need to buckle down. And like, I think this is an IQ test. So anyway, so that's, uh, maybe, maybe that says a lot in itself yeah. about what my IQ was. But you do all that just to kind of make sure you're kind of a stable person sure, going through. Yeah. And then, then your district will sign off on you, uh, hopefully, if all's well. And then you go to your conference, which is kind of like in the Catholic Church, your diocese, the sort of bigger regional body. Um, and then you, uh, by that time, uh, you, you're pretty sure you're going to pursue seminary. Yeah. So if they s- then certify you as a candidate, which means we're standing behind you, we want you to move forward— then if you go on to seminary, that allows you to get some uh, funding from your conference and from your, from your district. Um, and uh, and then, then when you're f- almost finished seminary, you, r- you answer a lot of theological questions. They want, mm. us, they want to know what's your doctrine of God and, and humanity and sin and grace and, 
the sacraments and all of these things. And so then you then you sit for an interview with with the board of ordained ministry representatives from that, and then assuming you uh, pass that, and uh, so this you, is after seminary. This is after your study. usually your. Uh, I did it. Uh, is it my last year of seminary. Wow. Most folks are doing that their last year of seminary, uh, and you you know you preach a sermon that's recorded and critiqued, and you uh, prepare a, uh, the lesson plans for a Bible study and all this stuff. Uh, it's a big packet of things. Um, but it's actually, I realized, and you may realize this too in, in seminary, you know, I had been writing papers about particular topics or particular theologians, but this was really the first t- opportunity I had had to say, okay, what, what's your theology? Like, how do you, how do you put it together? And so it, for me, it was a very, a very constructive experience. I was like, oh, okay, what, well, how do I understand God? And how do I understand these things? So I, I kind of enjoyed the experience of putting that together. And then, um, then assuming that goes well, uh, when, by the time you're finished with seminary, you are ready for an appointment uh, as a uh, probationary uh, member, which means you're kind of on, you're kind of, uh, you're not, you're not tenured yet. You're, right. you're appointed, you're, you're serving in a, in a ministry setting sort of for a three-year period now until you get a t- the essentially the tenure. So. Well, since I'm in seminary, I have some questions about your seminary. So yeah. what, what does that look like? Does it look... Because um, in the Catholic Church, it's very all-consuming. So every aspect of your life is looked on. They call it... Uh, currently, it's called uh, the four pillars of formation. So mm-hmm. there's uh, the academic side of formation. Mm-hmm. You have the pastoral side, spiritual, and then uh, human formation. So there's all these different avenues that we're coming um, that the seminary is coming at to try to make you a whole person, yeah. uh, fulfilling for this role as priest. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? I know it's it's different everywhere, and I know that um, I've heard you know different denominations essentially do the same thing, but in different mm-hmm. ways. It might not be as clear cut as saying, "Hey, we have four pillars." Yeah. So how, what does that look like? What does seminary actually look like? That's great, and you know, I'm thinking it might be different. Uh, being in a seminary like Candler at Emory, where we're training different folks from all different kinds of backgrounds. True, true. Um, I would think it would be easier and, and clearer in a tradition like yours, where everyone, I'm assuming, is is headed for the Catholic priest. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And so you can really uh, form and shape that. So what we had was we had folks coming in from Episcopalian, uh, Lutheran, okay. Baptist, and so a lot of it was there was a core curriculum that everyone took mm. academically. And then there were also what your your denominational accreditation was requiring of you, which could go above and beyond what the seminary's academic requirements were. So, for example, um, one of the things our Holston Annual Conference, which is the region that I'm a part of here, required was... Um, uh, Clinical pastoral education, or CPE. I'm doing that next summer. You're doing that, yes. so you know what that is. <laughs> I do, but for the listeners, yeah. Who might so not. what that is is, um, it's is you are put into a setting uh, where you're serving kind of as a as a chaplain or in in a ministry position uh, of some kind of setting. I was in a hospital, downtown Emory University Hospital. I was assigned as a student chaplain to uh, the oncology mm-hmm. unit. Um, 
other folks, you can serve in prisons, you can serve in industrial settings, you can serve in um, homeless shelters, you can serve in lots of different kind of places. But it's basically you're you're kind of thrown into a real thrown into a, you're, yeah. you're you're appointed to <laughs> a real ministry setting and and you have supervisors and you have colleagues who are going through this with you but uh, it really is an opportunity for you to uh, serve and then reflect on y- your ministry uh, so a lot of it was writing papers or presentations about okay what went well you would write up a a verbatim, as they would call it, where you would try to kind of capture a, a ministry engagement or conversation. Uh, and they usually tried to say, pick pick one that yeah, didn't quite go as well as you'd hoped it would be, because then you'll learn more about that. So then we would write those up, and then we'd get into groups, and they would say, yeah, this is, you know, you could have gone in maybe in this direction, or what what could you have done differently here? And that's getting at that more of that personal formation. Yeah. Um where you realize, uh, yeah, you don't have to have all the answers going in, uh, but it really formed and shaped you as a um, refl- to, to theologically reflect on the practice of ministry, right, yeah. which is a great thing to continue to do throughout your ministry. Because I have learned I continue to do things that could have gone better. <laughs> and so to, to just hone that skill of... Um, with treating yourself with grace and patience and understanding, but to be able to look back and often with colleagues mm. um, to say, how could how could that have gone differently? So that was one area where um, not everyone who went through seminary did that, but it was it was part of that. There were also lots of other um, affinity groups or things that that you could uh, pursue your personal spiritual formation alongside with. Uh, and and then uh, then there were other uh, settings too of just uh, supervised ministry where you were um, serving either in uh, your first year you were put into a, a setting I was a I was on a, a geriatric uh, floor of a memory care unit of a, one of the Emory's um, uh, skilled living centers and uh, and so that and then then my second year I was in I was in a local church where I basically shadowed the pastor and <laughs> yeah and sat in on meetings and got to see the exciting stuff the sausage yeah. getting made right yeah. exactly so <laughs> so it kind of hit it on all those different kind of um different areas of the of your ministerial formation do you remember yeah. any favorite class you may have taken theology class or yeah. maybe it wasn't even something related to theology yeah, I do. So uh, there were so many classes I, I loved, and then so many that and you may find this too, that you wish you had time in your schedule to yeah. take and it just didn't fit. But one of the my favorite classes was a summer class. It was just two weeks. We were in class every day from like eight until three or four in the afternoon, but it was called the Theology of Church and Sacraments. And so like the first week was different ways of understanding what the church is and and what its calling and mission in the world is. And then the second week we focused more on sacraments and ways in which we understand and 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 we were reading from all these different traditions. So we read folks I'm sure you've you've read from the Catholic tradition, we read um, from from Lutherans, we read other kinds of folks and uh, that just opened up. First of all, I love the professor is a fellow named um, Ted Runyon who uh, really 
made that class come alive. He was a very soft-spoken and quiet, and some some sort of felt like he was hard to listen to, but he was one of those who, who spoke very softly, but I just hung on every word yeah. he said and just tried to drink it in. Um, so that was that was a that was a key class for me that that also I would say reinforced my calling that I was still kind of exploring in seminary. I was like, I don't know, we'll see. I'll go to seminary, but I don't know about the ministry. Um, it, that really reinforced, and it came at a good time. It was right after my first year, um, going into my second year, and it's a three year process in in, in the Methodist Church. So that one really kind of stands out in my in my mind. I think that's a good segue into ecclesiology. I actually wanted to ask you, what's mm-hmm. the what is the church? What is the church? Yeah, for the Methodist tradition, or or in your in your view. Oh, that's great! I should get my notes out uh, yeah. from that book. No, <laughs> uh, I, I think the thing that really st- stuck out to me, and and really for I think the Methodist movement in particular, are are probably two things. One is. Uh, the church exists to to tell the story, uh, to to share the good news of Jesus, and to, just to just to tell that story in the world, um, and and to share the the good news of God's love for us and grace toward us and presence with us with with a world that, where there's so often so much bad news. I mean, so that the the, the pro- proclamation aspect of the church. Um, and then also uh, the other aspect that I think really came through was the, is the church is the servant, um, is, is really how can the church be in service to others in the world in the name of Jesus, um, you know, taking its lead from Jesus himself, who's, I came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, and so those would be the two things that I sort of think are the the things that rise to the top for me are the proclamation ministry and just the servanthood. Yeah. So with um, with regard to to soteriology, the idea of salvation through Christ, you mentioned that the church is there to proclaim the good news of what what is the good news of Christ. I know that's a very broad yet basic question, but I think it doesn't get asked, in my opinion, enough because everybody has a little take on it, a little different take on mm. it. Even um, within denomination, within just individuals, mm. what is that good news? What is Christ? What did Christ come to do? Yeah. So I think uh, again, maybe two things that come to mind. One is is sort of in His name uh, that we get in Matthew one. He's, he shall be called Jesus, for He will save His people. Um, and so Jesus being a savior of us, uh, and f- when anytime you talk about that, you're like, well, okay, saved from what? Oh. You know, what, what's yeah. the problem we're in? Yeah. And, and of course, uh, in a big word, it's, it's sin, mm-hmm. which is um, just all the messed up relationships in the world, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation. Is all of these relationships are warped in so many ways, and so Jesus is is coming to to sort of show us the way out of that and through that. Um, and I think the way he does that is the second thing, which is that uh, the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and the promise that Jesus says at the end of Matthew, you know, "Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth, into the age." So I think um, this this idea, and I think one of the things that really sets Christianity apart is uh, is the God, God of all creation, the God who 
started it all, did it all, took this human form in this person who lived in first century Palestine, Nazareth, and and um, and is and and so that divine life flows in and through him, and so in him, and and then through his Holy Spirit that's been spread upon us, uh, God, the God, the one God is with us even now, um, helping us to uh, find our way through this. And so I, th- I think that's good news. I think that gives folks hope who might feel despair, that they're stuck either in a bad relationship yeah. with themselves or with somebody else or with with a, a, a belief in a God like this maybe judgmental or uh, condemning God, you know, Jesus shows us a very different face of God. Um, and I think that's good news to folks who it can heal maybe their conception of God, wherever they may have gotten that from. Um, when we really look at Jesus and track him through the Gospels, we see just tremendous welcome and and, and grace and love and... and uh, so I just I think that that's good news in a world that's really starving. I think for some some really truly deeply good news. So where does the role where does the role of scripture mm-hmm. stand for the Methodist? Uh, what is, is it sola scriptura? Yeah. So is, uh, I've heard something about a Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. So here we get into my my, my math side, oh, the yeah. Wesleyan quadrilateral. You know, <laughs> We're, we might lose some viewers here, so hang on, or some <laughs> listeners. But um, yeah, for Wesley, uh, he he really leaned on four resources when he would be doing theology, and this was a the Wesleyan quadrilateral was a term he didn't use that term um, a. Uh, Wesleyan scholar in the late 60s, Albert Outler, coined that term. When he would read Wesley's sermons and writings, he saw that Wesley would keep coming back to the same four resources. And Scripture was the primary, always the primary resource. Uh, so you know, it's got to be sort of grounded in the scriptural witness. But he also leaned on tradition, which is kind of how the church has interpreted Scripture over the years and applied Scripture over the years. Um, it also leaned on reason. Uh, Wesley was a product of the Enlightenment, okay. and so you know he had he'd gone to Oxford and you know studied all the big names, John Locke and all those philosophers. And so, reason was an important uh, resource for him. You know, thinking through: Does this make sense? How does this fit together? Um, and then the the uh, the fourth that he kind of added, some folks you know suggest maybe Wesley really incorporated this fourth element was experience. Mm. Um, is this you know the church can teach and and say and all that it wants to, but unless it finds a home in our lived experience, it's not really real. Mm. And so Wesley was always, how does this experience shape his theology? I think you see this clearly for him. Uh, in in his uh, treatment of of the view of of slavery, he he saw he witnessed that experience, and so he was uh, convinced of of the uh, evil of that, basically from his experience watching that. Um, yeah. So those four that he would take, but scripture was always 
um, primary for him. So I would kind of like to say, maybe I'll write a book on this and say, I'm going to recoin it as the Wesleyan trapezoid and Ooh. have the, <laughs> the scripture as the long part at the there bottom. You go. But, but it was, yeah, it, and it still is. That's scripture really. And again, scripture tells the story yeah. of that, you know, I think we're narratively constructed people. Yeah. We love stories. Absolutely. Love to tell stories. I mean, we're in the we're in the southeast. We That's storytelling right. <laughs> culture, you know, and and the Bible is God's grand story. Yeah. So on to the practical um a little bit. In in the Methodist Church, how is it set up? Um, you know, I understand the Roman Catholic has this hierarchy, but I think is it a little bit different? I know there are bishops, I believe, mm-hmm. in the Methodist Church. How what does that look like? What's the yeah. hierarchy? What is their job? Yeah. Um, how does that work? And how that's does a, it differ than what you would typically assume? Maybe. Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, it's uh, if you can kind of picture concentric rings of circle like a bullseye. So uh, at the very center is the local church, which is really the heart of. That's where our mission is lived out. That's where disciples are made. I mean, that's that's kind of the that's the textbook definition in the Methodist Church of what's the mission of the church. We're to make disciples uh, who make a difference out in the world, and so uh, so th- that really happens in the local church. So the local church can be freestanding, like Keith is. Um, it can also be yoked together with other churches in a circuit. Mm. So like when I was I was here before as the associate pastor years ago, and from here I left and went over to Inglewood, and I served two churches um, on a circuit. So you know each of those in the in the center of the bullseye would have been in a other circuit other circle called the circuit. Um, and so then out beyond the circuit, the circuits are, or churches and circuits are part of a, of a district. And then the district is uh, a part of the conference. And so we have currently nine districts in the Holson Conference. And bishops typically are uh, assigned to conferences and serve within those conferences, annual conferences. So, uh, and they're elected by what's the next rung out, which is the jurisdiction which in the U.S., we're in the southeastern jurisdiction. I can't remember how many states there are, but it's basically Virginia over to kind of the Mississippi River down all the way through Florida. Oh, wow. So that's okay. so um, bishops are elected out of that jurisdiction and then assigned to serve. Within that jurisdiction? Within that oh, okay. jurisdiction. Um, so that's kind of how we get our bishops. They... Um, so and then then beyond that, it's it's the general church, which is the general conference. Which um, here's a difference with the with the Roman Catholic system: um, we don't have a pope. Right. So you know the pope can speak and does speak for the church mm-hmm. uh, and writes these you know uh, uh, statements that will be circulated around. And so you know a lot of times when it's wondered, well, what does the Catholic Church think about this? You look at statements from from popes. In the Methodist Church, we don't have like a head bishop. Um, okay. There's a there's a bishop who serves as the president of the council of bishops, but that person doesn't speak for the church. Mm-hmm. The general conference is the only body that speaks for the church. So the general conference is kind of like the Congress. Okay. Um, and so they meet every four years. Mm-hmm. So um, the General Conference speaks only every four years, if you will, <laughs> but they act on you know legislation and things, and so that's how our um, statements and positions on all kinds of things 
are made and evolve is through the process of that conference. So what's what's some of that that's being brought up now? What's the new thing that Methodism is talking about, con- the conversations that are going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard some things, but I, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. out of the loop, so... Sure, sure. Well, the main thing that, we, you know, we were supposed to have had a general conference. They, they kind of follow the uh, U.S. presidential election years, okay. which... That's difficult. Can, it can be difficult, <laughs> yeah, because because sometimes uh, church politics can follow yeah. uh, national politics. Yeah. But it's, so it's an international body, and we were supposed to have met in May, and we send representatives from each annual conference. Uh, we're supposed to meet in May in Minneapolis of this year, and then of course COVID happened, and so travel from all around the world was shut down. So that's been postponed until uh, late summer next year. But the main thing that gets the news attention is uh, the church is really struggling to uh, discern what to do with with matters of human sexuality, uh, particularly around um, ordination of of uh, persons who are um, uh, in homosexual or uh, transgendered kind of situations, and also the marriage of, of those individuals. So uh, the church is really kind of uh, in, in a couple different places on that. And so that was what was to come before the general conference this year were proposals to try to figure out ways to maybe sort of separate or kind of live in some different houses, but maybe in the same village together. I mean, there's all different ways of envisioning that. So that was the main thing that was going to be presented. But there's a whole lot of other things that the church is ongoing trying to figure out how to do that doesn't get as much news attention. Um, one of the the bishops, all the bishops together in the general conference for probably the last, I would, I would say, eight years maybe, has been focused on how can the church uh, really uh, promote good health around the world. And hmm. so they've, they've really been uh, instrumental in tackling malaria around the world, um, and then also uh, just all kinds of health situations, uh, being a voice for healing and wholeness around the world. Another thing that they've been trying to do is um, start new churches in new places or revitalize churches in some places that have been struggling. And so, uh, to, again, that's that sort of zeal to get out there and proclaim the word and be be servants in the communities is um, how do we how do we renew revamp revitalize some of the ministries of the church so when you were moving out of seminary into that into that position as minister for the first time what was that what was that like for you I mean I know you have you've had all this training you've had all these things you had to you know get signed off on and and you know people believed in you. In order to push you to this point, and I know that there's a lot riding on this, and you walk into your first church, and after the first year, how do you feel? Like, it was it what you expected? Was it different? Were you nervous? What yeah. was that like? So my first year was probably a little different um, than than a lot of folks. I had uh, my first year of ministry after seminary was over in England. Jealous. Um, that's yeah, amazing. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I had gone on a John Wesley heritage tour with yeah. my mom and my home church before starting seminary. And I learned that uh, while I was in seminary, seminary that uh, the British Methodist Church, so the, the mother church, uh, if you will, needed folks to serve. 
um, they had more appointments available than they had people to serve those oh, appointments. Yeah. So they were inviting international folks to come in. So I was like, my wife and I, Tracy, uh, we had just gotten married that spring, and we were like, yeah, let's let's do this. What a great year just to go over for a year, serve serve in that interim type thing, and then come on back. So my first year, I was appointed to a circuit with five churches. Oh, so a literal circuit. Wow. A literal circuit and, wow. and and it was I had five churches on a overall circuit that had 10 wow. and there were two other pastors serving with me. Okay. So uh at first I was overwhelmed. Sure. I was I was just oh my goodness. Um but they were great. They were the folks over there and my fellow uh pastors were just very supportive. Um I remember going into one church and they they were just they just wanted to hear me talk. They mm-hmm. said they told me you could just stand up there and read the phone book, and we would love to. We just want to hear your voice. They said you sound just like they do in the movies. <laughs> Isn't that so? Funny? I feel the same way about Brits when they're over here. It's like I just want to listen to you talk. I don't care what I you know. say. Just say it. I yeah. said the exact same thing to them. I was like, we all think that you're just so smart. Yeah, and, exactly. And uh, and they just thought they were like pshaw. But um, so. So the first year, I didn't realize this as much, but I was essentially serving as an interim minister for them. Um, so once I kind of figured that out, my mission f- for them was to kind of help them figure, get ready for the next person to come in and serve. Uh, so so that was a that was an experience that uh, I think we, we just we really enjoyed that. So when we came back. Um, I came back here as the associate. I, I came here okay. for my first stateside appointment. Um, so being an associate is kind of a good first landing appointment, really, because mm-hmm. the buck doesn't stop with you. Right. But you kind of you really get to see and and participate in in how it all happens mm-hmm. in a church of this size. So I was working with Stella Roberts, yeah. uh, you know Sam uh, and Stella, and so Stella was a wonderful mentor to me uh, when I was here. Unfortunately, she was only here for uh, that first year. Then she was called off to become a district superintendent, which is kind of the the mid-next level um, supervisory position. So uh, But then Mike Hubble came in, and he was a a wonderful mentor in in a different way. They had different skills, different gifts. Um, And so, yeah, it it was still nervous. I remember getting up in front of folks here. And I mean, it's a college town, mm-hmm. you know, there's some movers and shakers in this congregation and you mm-hmm. you, you want to get up and there and say something intelligent. Yeah. Um, like, like I knew I was having an IQ test now, you know, so <laughs> no, but, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there is that. Um, but then once you kind of live into the role, uh, one of the things we're ordained to is not just word and sacrament, but order and ordering the life of the mm-hmm. church. Um, Helping the church kind of figure out how how to be structured and mobilized for ministry, and um, I think that's something you really do kind of grow into. And fortunately, if you can be at a church where there's tremendously strong lay leadership, they can kind of help you do that. Yeah. They're they're actually more expert at that in their own fields Absolutely. than 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 I would ever be. So you mentioned your wife. How mm-hmm. is how is having a family? And being a minister, like what I will never yeah. experience that. Yeah, that's that's um, right. So what what is what has that been like? <laughs> what are the challenges maybe that have uh, come? Yeah. From? So the challenges are 
you know, sometimes you your openness to serving in certain areas of your annual conference mm-hmm. are somewhat restricted either by your spouse's maybe work or in our situation, we have a, a son with a health condition, so we need to be relatively close to East Tennessee Children's Hospital. So those are things that come into consideration in our life that wouldn't necessarily for you. And sometimes, sometimes I'm kind of envious of um, Catholic priests who can be fully devoted in their ministry to the church. And and um, yeah, I can have that sort of what Bonhoeffer talked about, that single-minded obedience, you know, you're right. just focused on that. Whereas I think sometimes having a family, you're, you're pulled in some different directions, you know, uh, many's the time where you know, one of the boys had something going on at the school or with sports, and yet there was something going on with church, and it's just, it pulls you in some different directions. Um, I would say the the blessings of it, though, too, is uh, is your family is a, is a um, environment of of grace, if mm. you will. It, it's it's where we it's where we live out and experience some of the grace that we show one another through the church, but in an especially intense way in Absolutely, your family. Yeah. So sometimes the the ways in which you practice and show uh, forgiveness and grace, mercy, understanding within your family, I think helps me in in extending that with the church and vice versa. Yeah. So I think they they complement one another, the home and and the church setting too. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I think um, I've created a little set of questions here that I'm calling yeah. the Trinity. It's the same three questions that I think I'm going to ask all of my guests. Yeah. Um, the first one, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about. I've read about it in philosophy. I've talked about it in class, but with regard to preachers um, and, profess- and most professors and, and, and other lay people, you don't hear about it much. Who and what is God? Hmm. Um, hmm. And you can you can take that however you want. <laughs> you can take that you know personally. How the Methodist tradition shows that I think it's it's a tough question, but um, I think it's an important one. Yeah. Because I think we can look at Christ, and I think we could see Christ for who He is as a human being. We can see that human aspect of Him, and and really grasp onto that. But who is God? What is God? Yeah. That's a great question, and really, I mean, the foundational question. And it's funny you mentioned um, the Trinity, a, a Trinity of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mentioned how we had to write that big uh, statement of of what we believe about all these things. And and the first time I wrote it down, and I didn't really change this a whole lot, uh, was uh, was a Trinitarian response. You know, God is is the creator of everything, and and so is the source of life, and existence, uh, but that we also see through the face of Christ and we experience through the presence of the Spirit. So for me, you know, the, the relational aspect of God was um, was very important, um, that God, the Trinity, I mean, I love the Trinity. I love the idea of the Trinity. Um, and, and, and as someone who wanted to teach math, I love kind of the mathematical mystery of it. Right. Um, but, you know, the idea essentially is that God is a is a relationship mm. and so and who calls us into relationship with God and with one another. So I think relationship is such a key uh, concept in my theology. Um, you know sin is broken relationship. Salvation is relationship being restored. So I think it's all grounded in this idea of, of God who's 
essence is relationship within God's own self. Mm. Um, that's that. who God is. The other part I would say I, I picked up from uh, from England was in the subways, um, in the in the tube, the London tube. <laughs> they have this uh, sign that says "Mind the gap." Mind the gap. And you know, every time a subway is on the way, it'll <laughs> come across the loudspeaker. Mind the gap. And of course, the gap is you know that area from the platform from where you're standing right. to you know, where the subway is going to come. And so if you don't mind the gap, you're going to get whacked right. by that subway um, coming through there. And so I, I kind of applied that idea to, to God. It, when it comes to God, we have to kind of be mindful of the gap between us and God. Like we can't, and there, and it's a, it's a fine line, but we don't want to be so on such intimate terms with God that God is just kind of our glorified buddy. Um, But we also don't want God to be so distant from us as that we don't have any really real relationship with God at all either. So there's, you kind of have to mind the gap between you would know the terms, the imminence and the transcendence Mm, um, between the closeness and the distance. So uh, trying to figure that gap. and, And I think prayer Prayer is the way to mine the gap. Oh, and yeah. and scripture, reading scripture helps us, you know, and says, Your ways are not my ways. We're like, right. Yep, I know that. But then when it also says, Come on to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, that's a very close image too. So just holding those two things together. That's good. The second question I have is what is God doing in your life right now? What is the Holy Spirit laying on your heart? Perhaps you're preparing you know, something uh, to preach this coming Sunday, or yeah. what, what's God doing with you right now? So that is a, uh, I really appreciate that question. I was, we were hoping to go back to England this summer for about a three-week sort of sabbatical, um, really to take our boys where we had lived for that year and see some friends over there. But also, um, I just, I was beginning to feel last fall like uh, I, I'm in my 20th, I was in my 20th year of ministry and I was just beginning to think, you know, we don't get, we're supposed to get sabbaticals, <laughs> right. but nobody ever really <laughs> takes it. Um, but I was kind of feeling in need of that. I was feeling not burnt out, but a little bit like I'd trodden the same paths a lot and was just trying to find something fresh. And, and um, so I was really looking forward to this summer, and then COVID happened. But one of the weird things that has come out of this whole COVID thing is um, some of the preaching that we've done, um, some of the ways in which I felt messages that I felt needed to be shared, uh, which which have ranged from uh, grief, like what what we're doing here. Some of the anxiety and some of the re- responses we're feeling is, yeah. is really a reflection of grief. So I like I preached this big sermon on grief. Mm. Um, I've preached. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Acts, which is an amazing yeah. book. I mean, just to see how the Spirit was involved in the early church. Then I've probably shared some things more intensely uh, than maybe I had before. So in a way, I feel like. The Spirit's been moving more uh, in some new, fresh ways here, in spite of not being able to go on this little sabbatical, and and even in the midst of what's an awful situation of, I I, ironically not 
being able to meet in person for church for so long and preaching to a camera <laughs> yeah. instead of a congregation. Um, so I feel like the Spirit's been moving in me in some ways right now that I would not have expected and, in fact, was expecting the very opposite. Mm. So. Oh. The third question, um, I really just want to take the opportunity for these personal interviews and just be a little bit selfish here at the end. And yeah. I just want to ask for any advice that you could give me moving into ministry, moving into the position of becoming mm. a pastor, um, dealing with the people, dealing with the kingdom, you know, down here uh, in the mess. Yeah. What what kind of advice would you give to me? Oh, <laughs> these are great questions, Drew. Um, you know, so I would say the thing that I wish I had done more of was uh, keeping a journal or more of a record, which was a strange thing for me because I grew up keeping a, a daily journal. And then kind of once I hit seminary, I was just exhausted at the end of the day. But I would say going in, like keep a record of the, of the baptisms you do, who it was. And when that, what day it was uh, of the you know the marriages you perform the the funerals, um, because those are all of those are re those relationships that you're cultivating and you'll be able to look back and some of them you won't you'll be like I I don't really re have any strong recollection of those services or those folks but some of them you're like oh yeah yeah uh, I remember those folks and you can kind of. Uh, you, and if you, in the weird ways in which God brings people together over years, uh, you can, that could just be some wonderful opportunities to reconnect some relationships. So I'd say be intentional about the concrete particulars, the names, the stories, uh, those kinds of things, because really when it comes down to ministry, I think that's, it's incarnational. It's it's those moments. It, it's kind of like the Gospels. It, it talks about this conversation and this encounter. Um, I would say follow the lead of that, and and that will be a tremendous... After you've been in it 20 years, you'll be able to look back and say, man, I'm so glad I did that. That's beautiful. Reverend Dave Graybill, thank you so much for joining me here and having this conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely, Drew. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to listening to some other ones. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to interviewing everybody and anybody. So Wonderful. shoot some people my way if you can think of anybody. I, really I will. It. All right. Be glad to. Thank you so much. Thanks, Drew.